great. If you would take your Bible and turn to Psalm 146. Psalm 146. We are now entering the, the last five psalms, and if you'll, as you turn to, to Psalm 146, if you kind of thumb through those last two pages probably in your Bible, uh, maybe three, what you will notice about the final five psalms is they all begin with and end with the same word, hallelujah, or translated literally, praise the Lord. Um, there's a whole argument about uh, if, if these are um, identified with Haggai and Zephaniah, and, and that whole argument um, I, 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 I'm tempted to get into, but what really matters here is to realize uh, that there is consistency not only in these five final psalms, but really in all of the Psalter. And that is that we should spend every ounce of our lives seeking to glorify the Lord and to praise Him come what may. We've seen the ups and downs of the life of the psalmist. We've seen the writer expressing grief and shame and sin, doubt, fear, um, turmoil, all of those things we've seen in different psalms as we've made our way through over the past six years. Now, for some of you who haven't, you know, just new to LifePoint, thankfully most of those are on tape, so you can catch up. should only take you six months or so. Um, but truly, uh, we see the variety of what is said Throughout the Psalter, we see the reality that the Christian life, that the faithful life lived in the sight of God is not one that is just giddy and cheery all the time. Uh, That there is uh, the ebbs and flows of life. But in the face of all of that, what the Psalms teach us is that we can praise God come what may. Um, We don't know everything that God is up to. We don't know everything that God is up to in our own individual lives. Uh, So we certainly can't answer the big picture uh, throughout the entire uh, entirety of human existence other than the reality of what we are told in the Bible, which is that God is redeeming a people for His own glory. And we do know that that is true not only from the Psalms, but from the ark of all of Scripture. And I think what we really find in this psalm and really throughout the entire biblical narrative is that if this life is hard, and it is, um, then to be defiant doesn't mean, in the face of all that the world throws at us, doesn't mean to turn into bitter and cold, angry people succumbing to the pain and the difficulty that we face, to be defiant in a world that is against God and against us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ means that we are to become more and more, as we walk with the Lord, people who praise God in spite of all that we experience in the different circumstances of life. And this is particularly true as our lives 
move towards their earthly end. Now, as we grow older, we should be people who grow to be people more and more of praise. I think one of the most disheartening realities that I find in the church is the reality that at times that's just not the case uh, for whatever reason. That the years don't add a joy in the Lord, but instead you find people who name the name of Christ that even towards the end of their life just grow sullen, arrogant, um, prudish. And that, that tells you something about the moorings of their genuine spiritual life. Because if that's the trajectory of our life in the here and now, we have to come back and we have to ask ourselves, why is it that we can grow that way when the psalmist and the whole trajectory of the psalms themselves are not, in the face of all that is uncertain in the world, to become cold and callous and, well, grumpy, uh, but to end in praising God. I think it causes... Uh, it should cause each one of us to pause and, and think about our own growth in the Lord and walk with Him. Interestingly, in the treasury of David, Charles Spurgeon uh, reports about a man named John on his deathbed crying out this way. He says, as he is dying, Come, help me with praises. Let everything that has being help me to praise God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise is now my life work, and I shall be engaged in this sweet work now and forever. Bring the Bible, turn to David's Psalms, and let us sing a psalm of praise. Come, let us lift up our voices in the praises of the Most High. I will sing with you as long as my breath lasts. And when I have, done, when I have none, then I will do better. Uh, what John is saying there in this illustration is that even in our waning moments, um, we should praise God for what He has done. So we have to ask this question, what does the, the word, and I, I think I've already pointed this out, but what does the word hallelujah mean? And I will answer that after we read the text. So if you would stand to honor the reading of God's word tonight, starting in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he who, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. The way of the wicked He brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come in, in light of this text. And we realize that far too often in our lives, we grumble, we complain, 
Uh, We read your providence poorly. Uh, We don't see the reality that you are doing the very thing that you've promised in your word, and that is to make a name for yourself, to redeem a people for your own inheritance, and Father, to bring us great joy through Christ. So I pray that tonight as we lean into this psalm, and in the coming weeks as we lean into the final psalms, that we would become people more and more inclined, come what may, to praise your name, because you have done wonderful things for us to your own glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So what does the word hallelujah mean? Our culture has trivialized this word as it does with so many other, uh, with other expressions, other terms. Um, I, I think this is a, it, it's almost just a word that is relegated to, it, it means some sort of, of um, religious excitement. Um, it's, it's somewhat meaningless in, in the broader culture. Sarah and I actually went last night and saw uh, Handel's Messiah in Austin, and I was telling her on the way back, it was disheartening to me because um, we didn't even get uh, past intermission, and for those of you who have been to Handel's Messiah, uh, the, the Hallelujah Chorus comes at the second uh, set of scenes, and there were a good 20% of the crowd that just filed out of the building, and, and there was this realization that here is, and if you're not familiar with Handel's Messiah, don't worry, it's not going to turn into a sermon on Handel's Messiah, but this is probably the most well-known piece of, of music that has been orchestrated in Western culture. I mean, it is the, the most well-known piece of music, and yet what was so evident to me was not only some who were engaged in singing and producing the music, but those who were there to listen to it probably didn't have a great understanding of what in the world it was that they were listening to, other than it sounded really fancy and we all got to put a suit and tie on. Like that seemingly was we all get to get dressed up and go listen to some people sing in ways that we couldn't in our own strength. But friends, the the, the reality there is just we see the trivialization of things that have meaning and context. And all of that to say hallelujah ultimately is a word, a compound Hebrew word, uh, hallel and yah, uh, the first part meaning praise and the second being a contraction for the name of God, Jehovah. So the word hallelujah literally translated means praise the Lord. And that's why you find in these last five psalms, uh, praise the Lord beginning and ending each one of uh, these particular uh, psalms. There is this real understanding that to live the, the faithful life of a believer is to live a life praising God for all that He has done. Now, if this is disconnected from the rest of the Psalter, uh, we would probably just kind of gloss over it. But the reality is, again, those things that are behind, uh, the sin and suffering, um, the doubt and the shame, all of those things are part of what it is to live a faithful life life in Christ. And what the psalmist wants us to understand is, as, as we wind down here is that we can continue, in spite of all that we experience in this life, to worship God in spirit 
and in truth. We really can make it our aim. If you were to ask the psalmist, what is the chief end of man? His response would be to praise God forever. And so we need to come and, and, and think through some of what it means to, again, worship God in light of these verses. And the first thing that I think we have to notice about praising God in a fallen world is that worship is genuinely work. It takes effort on our part to actually sing God's praises and to engage in praising Him genuinely. Um, there is this reality, and I've talked about this, so I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but there is a reality as we've walked through uh, these last few psalms that I've come to, and that is more than I ever thought. We have, we have dumbed down everything about what it means to be a Christian, and particularly what it means to worship God Rightly, We live in an entertainment culture where we want everything to be easy. We want to be able to show up and we want to be uh, consumers of a product that, in such a way that we don't have to engage our affections and our effort in what it is we are participating in. And so the greatest problem that I think Christianity faces today, and I'm, I'm not attacking anyone in this room, but we all need to question our own hearts, I think, as we come to these final five psalms. I think the greatest thing that, that we face in our own sin lives is that we are far too prone to just being lazy in our walk with the Lord. Uh, we are prone to doing what is natural. We are prone to doing what it is the church culture just tells us is right. Just show up and kind of blend in with the crowd and, and whatever is going on in our generation inside the church is what, well, that's, that's just what church is. The problem is, that's not the reality when we bring worship to light in its biblical context. To be a worshiper of the living God means that there's going to be difficulty. And it means that praising Him is going to take energy and effort. That doesn't mean... As soon as I say something like that, immediately I know I'm going to get questions. So are you saying we earn our salvation? No, I'm not saying that. But downstream from, from our salvation in Christ, He never promises us that following Him is going to be easy. He never says this is not going to take effort in following me. In fact, it's the exact opposite all the way through the New Testament. To praise God is going to take conscious, concerted effort. And, and really, if, if I'm not going to preach this psalm over again, but turn back to Psalm 137. And do you remember verses 2 and 3 that we dealt with some weeks ago? Uh, this is again a psalm that is written in a context of Babylonian captivity and on the willows, the psalmist says, there we hung our lyres. For, we, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors myrrh, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. What, what, what the psalmist is saying there is that the Babylonian captors had looked at the people of God and they had turned the worship of God into nothing more than entertainment. And what I'm suggesting to you this evening 
In light of Psalm 137 and in light of Psalm 146 is this reality that, beloved, our church culture, where we live in San Angelo, Texas, by and large, the culture screams at us, entertain me, but let's not get too serious about worship. And so if we are going to be the church that God wants us to be, we have to come in here every week with a demand of not entertain me, but feed me that I might worship in spirit and in truth in light of what God has really spoken. That is of paramount significance. There are people, I'm going to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail. These are always fun. Um, there are people, preachers, and um, Chad, you may have had to interact with this, um, that will say something like, well, I don't think that preachers should take notes into the pulpit. When I got to this church, I remember the first year I was mortified. Because those of you who know me know that, and I'm not picking on the church that we've been there, faithful people in this room that have been members of this church for years, and I praise God for that, so don't hear me. Uh, with a, in a wrong bent. Uh, but I remember, you know about me, that um, I love to read. And I remember one of the first things, uh, the first couple of months of my ministry here. If you're reading books, then you're not really depending on God for what you're going to teach and preach. And you shouldn't take notes to the pulpit. You should just speak from the heart. Okay. And those same people, one in particular, and I'm not going to, I don't want this to turn into Wamway, but one of those individuals actually did what he was encouraging me to do and just kind of got up here. He was not a pastor, he was uh, just a, a lay person in our church and did that very thing, just kind of extemporaneously blurted out whatever he was thinking in the moment. And I just remember that is not honoring the Lord because nobody is growing in a greater understanding of who the Lord is through that nonsense. And I say all of that merely to say this, to preach and teach, to sing together, to have a right-ordered liturgy is not something that comes together through osmosis. Like, you don't just put your Bible under the pillow and wake up and just, okay, I'm going to say these things. It takes a concerted effort and work, and I believe that not only on the pastor's part, but on the entire congregation's part. Uh, part of that work has to be that we come, when we come together, that we have prepared our hearts to worship. That we've asked God to empty our minds and our, um, our, our hearts of all things that would be a distraction so that we could genuinely hear not from Jay but from his word. So one, worship is work. Two, worship must engage the mind. If worship is praising God for who he is, then we have to know who he is. And I don't have to belabor this point because I already have on Sunday morning for eight weeks. Um, we need to know the attributes of God. It's so disheartening. I, and here's the reality of... Remember when I talked about the curmudgeon older person that's been in the church for 40 years and they're just, they're just irritated all the time? It's because they're not living on the, the, the grandeur of the attributes of God. They are living on things that are earthly and far less. There is no way that you can become a student of... Stephen Sharnock's four-volume series on the attributes of God and not come out 
rightly understanding God is much bigger than I ever thought. And in that, having a greater joy. Um, th- there's no way that you read a, uh, A.W. No, is it A.W.? I'm totally going to biff this. Is it Pink? Why do I have Tozer in mind? Anyway, Tozer or Pink, take your pick. You're not going to read those guys and come away with uh, a lot of just being grumpy about who the Lord is. Our joy and our genuine worship is wrapped up, is united with our understanding of who He is. So it is going to take uh, thinking on our part. That is, if you know uh, the um, theologian of our day, uh, Dr. Al Mohler is one of my heroes. And one of his statements, when he's doing a broadcast, he'll say, now this is going to require thinking on our part. And I kind of, in a cheeky way, always respond to him when I'm listening, that's your problem, Al. Like, if it's going to require thinking, there's a vast number of people who are just going to say no. To be a worshiper of the triune God means you're going to have to engage your mind. It's not just merely your affections. It, in fact, I think starts with the mind and issues forth in the affections. So one, worship is work. Two, worship must engage our minds. Three, worship is possible only because of God's revelation. Now I want you to turn to 1 John chapter one. This is a probably a pretty new book to most of you all. Maybe not. And I dealt with a little bit of this on Sunday, and I'm going to repeat it probably until I forget about it, and I hope I never do. But First John chapter 1, the, the first four verses. If I were... Let me just share an unvarnished reality in my own life. Uh, preaching through First John has made me more certain that there is no hope to have joy and to worship genuinely if you don't know the Word of God. Like, why do pastors often encourage people be in the, be in the Word, read the Bible over and over and over again? It's not so that you can feel better about being a better reader or a more moral person. It is because joy and worship are wrapped up in these words. Listen to what John says again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, that is the apostles, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That there is this reality that we have to understand the intentionality of what the New Testament and Old Testament authors are conveying to us. We have to engage our mind. We have to do the work through the Word because this is the only means by which we can know the living God. This is God's revealed Word. Is the mechanism that He has chosen in in cooperation with His Spirit. And and here's the dichotomy that drives me nuts. People that will say, well, I don't really need the Bible, I just depend on the Spirit. Okay, no doubt 
the, the Spirit of Almighty God. And there is this false dichotomy that is pitting the Spirit of God against the Word of God. And I'm like, if the Spirit is speaking to you, He is speaking to you loudly these words. So we have to do the work. We have to engage our minds. We have to depend upon the revelation and the authorial intent that we find in the pages of Scripture. And also we have to realize this. Worship is personal. Worship is not something that can be consumed. It's not a consumer product. Uh, Worship doesn't happen when we go and merely pay a a tithe or something like that and then say, okay, I am paying for the people on the stage to do the work of worship. It's not my job to worship for the church. I worship alongside of you. The reality is that everyone in their own heart must engage in the practice of worship. And that is really encapsulated here in, in what John, excuse me, in what the psalmist is writing. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to God while I have my being. I will engage in the work of worship. I will engage my mind. I will seek to know the Word of God. And I will do that personally. Now, We move in the directions of verses uh, 3 and 4, and they seem out of place. Uh, Listen to them. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. So there are these two verses that are stirring us in the direction of genuine worship with our minds, our work, our affections personally, through the Word, praising Him. And then all of a sudden, it's almost like the psalmist has pivoted in a completely different direction. And don't put your hopes in princes and kings. And so it seems disjointed, but I promise you it's not. Because here is the greatest hurdle to the worship of God in this room this evening. And that is, we put far too much value on others and far too little value on the Lord. We tend to want to go in the direction of the herd instead of coming before the living God in His triune holiness and praising Him for who He is regardless if we stand with multitudes or if we stand alone. Our propensity inevitably is to allow our worship to become man-centered and not God-centered. It's the main reason we fail to worship God. It's because we value human beings more than we value God. And most often, when, I, when we've changed things in our liturgy or the way that we do worship at LifePoint, without fail, almost every time, though probably not every time, exclusively, but often the argument that I will hear is, yeah, but people don't like and fill in the blank. So these words aren't out of place. If we are going to praise God, then we're going to be people who no longer keep men at the center, but rather 
we put God in His rightful place and we worship Him regardless of what man thinks. Secondly, we tend to value ourselves more than we value God. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Now we know the history of Israel, don't we? They wanted a king. They wanted, why did they want a king? Did they just come up with that idea on their own? No, they wanted a king because they looked at the other nation. They looked at the, the other nations of the world and they said, well, they have kings. Now think about the absurdity of that. Think about the reality that they have the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the triune God as the one who is ultimately over the nation. And they go, but we don't want that. We want a man who, if something bad happens, he can save us from that reality. Well, God ultimately gives us that man, but, but the problem is far too often it's, not that, it's that we're not looking to Jesus to, for our salvation. It's that we're looking horizontally or within ourselves. Um, to save us. In fact, this if you're a student of history, you'll remember that Queen Elizabeth I, um, at different times in her reign, became pretty dictatorial. And study medieval history in England, and you realize that kings and those in authority, uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, there wasn't a lot of room for questioning their authority. And if they just got ticked off, it probably at you it would probably be a bad day for you. Um, and so you would have to speak very carefully to the sovereign because uh, it was kind of off with your head if you ticked them off. Well. Queen Elizabeth I was, was particularly being kind of obstinate at one particular point, and her spiritual counselor, Archbishop Grindel, uh, rebuked her and said, remember, madam, you are nothing more than a mortal creature. I think that we would do well to remember that as well. That we are not self-sovereigns, and here's the reality. If you don't think that's a problem, you've missed the past 200 years of American history. Uh, we are brought up from the cradle to believe that we're self-sovereign. Uh, we are brought up to believe that in our freedom, we can achieve the greatest end by doing what pleases us the most. If you were to take the modern American mindset in the direction of freedom, absolutely unfettered freedom just for freedom's sake, which is what we have, and you were to apply that to a king in the Middle Ages, you would look at that individual and go, you're nothing more than a tyrant. Just because you only have one subject doesn't make you any less of one either. All of that to say we, we, we often value ourselves above God, do we not? Uh, we come into worship and instead of it being about what exalts His name, we depend on what we think is right. But the psalmist here says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, that includes ourselves, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. The reality is, friends, that what matters is what God has spoken, not what we think. And so we have to, if we're going to worship rightly, we have to do the work of coming to the Word of God, engaging our minds, 
and allowing him to speak through his word. Now, we come here to verses 5 through 9, and it's really the longest stanza of this particular psalm, and it really begins with the beatitude. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God. And what we find is that God is that now at the center. So, so again, the way the psalmist is writing is, I'm going to worship rightly. I, I'm endeavoring to do that. And then he comes and he, a, he lifts before us the two great problems to worship, and that is other people and ourselves. And then he pivots in verse 9 and he says, now that we're past ourselves and others, let us worship rightly. And what we find in these next verses is that God is at the center. In fact, um, the name for God occurs in these verses, verses 5 through 9, seven times. So if we are going to have a right view of worship, it must not casually center on God. It must exclusively center on who He is and what He has done for His own glory. And the first thing that we find here in verse 5 is that the Lord in right worship is our hope. Blessed is He whose hope is in the Lord. God alone can save. We can't save ourselves. And here's the reality. No one else is going to save us either. And if you really think about it, no one in the world, even if they could save you, probably would. It is only God who ultimately has authored the redemptive narrative and who has given His only begotten Son that we would have life through Him. It is exclusively through Christ. It's why when you come to to Larry King Live or to um, trying to Piers Morgan, I think is one of the more recent ones, where you get a well-known Christian pastor and he's asked the softball question, so Johnny Mac or so... uh, What's the smiling dude in Houston? Joel Olstein or Creflo Dollar or whoever. And they're asked the simple question Is Jesus the only way to heaven? Is he the only way to have a saving relationship with God? Is he the exclusive means of salvation? And here there are men who. Pro- Proclaim to stand for the Lord and they will start to start. Well, He is for me. No, no, no. He's not the exclusive means for salvation to the preachers. He is the only propitiation for the entire planet throughout all of the ages. That's an easy answer if you've read the Bible. There is no other way. It is only... Through Christ. And so here, the psalmist comes, and what right worship looks like in its substance primarily is to herald the reality that my hope is not in material blessings. My hope is not in my health. My hope is not in my, the relationships inside my family. My hope is not that the church is always perfect. My hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we worship rightly, that will be our aim as well. Secondly, uh, we see in verse 6, the Lord remains faithful forever. Who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith 
forever. Verses 7 and 8 take us to the New Testament ultimately when Jesus announces uh, His purpose in the synagogue of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. And He's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 61 here when He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He has anointed Me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent Me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, as much as we know, Jesus was not here primarily talking about starting a prison ministry. As much as we know, throughout the entirety of the New Testament, with the exception there could be an argument about Paul, but Jesus Himself personally never literally freed anyone from prison. What is being talked about when Jesus begins His ministry here is that He is set about to seek and to save the lost, to redeem us from our sin. That was one of the things last night that I saw more than anything else. This reality that what we have unhitched the Gospel from is its entire context. When people speak about redemption and salvation and Jesus and love and all of those terms, the sad reality in our day is that we don't understand the entire context of His salvation. When you listen to Handel's Messiah, the very beginning really is explicitly clear that God, and we talked about this, I was was really, I was was enamored. Um, There is this clear depiction that God's wrath will be poured out on the earth. You can't listen to Handel's Messiah and if you're really looking for it, miss the reality that the salvation that comes in the Hallelujah Chorus and the joy that is brought to the world is a joy that is is there only because this Savior has not saved them from just poverty in a financial sense or from poor health. The, The Savior has come to redeem men and to shield them from the wrath that is to come. We've lost that entire context. But here, the psalmist says, the Lord sets, excuse me, the Lord remains faithful forever. Jesus is is faithful to do what he has come to do. Also, the Lord gives sight to the blind in verse 8. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The greatest blindness of all is a blindness to what the Scriptures teach. The the greatest blindness is understanding. It's why we find Jesus all throughout the New Testament saying, those who have ears, let them hear. Or those who have eyes, let them see. It's because our sin has blinded us to the glories of what God has revealed in His Word. And the only way beyond that is through Jesus in having our eyes open by the work of the Spirit. We also see in this psalm that the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord, again, loves the righteous. Love here, rather than an 
action is really an attitude. And it's mentioned here because it is a source of everything else that He does. The reason that we praise Him is because He is the faithful one who has come to uphold each one of us who are oppressed by our own sin to free the prisoner, to give sight to the blind, to lift us when we are bowed down. And ultimately, all of those things happen for one reason. Because God has set His love upon us by the counsel of His own will. We also see that the Lord watches over the sojourner, over the foreigner in verse Nine, and I think this is probably one of the, the best verses in this psalm, or at least the one that captures my heart. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. The way of the wicked he bring, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Here, the, the three cases listed, the, the sojourner, uh, the widow, the fatherless, really is a picture of of those who are defenseless. And and what the psalmist is saying is that God watches over those who have no ability to care for themselves. And and friends, if you look at those if if you look at verse nine and you think, oh, well that's so sweet. God is just set about taking care of, of widows and orphans in the world and all of those poor people down here away from us that are distant. And you read that verse somehow as though you don't relate to it. You've missed the entire, the entire point of verse 9. And in fact, I would argue that at some level, you are the blinded one that needs to have your sight restored. Now, God does in His kind providence and benevolent love Show, uh, show mercy to weak people in the world in a real sense. I believe that's true. But what he's really talking about in verse 9 is the reality of his church, I think. We are the sojourners. We are the ones who are ultimately down and out and defenseless and could not care for ourselves, spiritually speaking. We are the individuals who left to our own devices would be the wicked who would run into ruin. And it is only because of Christ and His love for those who cannot care for themselves that we can ever come to verse 5 and be blessed knowing that our hope is in the God of Jacob. It is only because We are found to be weak, and yet in Christ and His strength, He protects and guards those who could have never helped themselves that we have rest from our own sin. So what fuels, I believe, right worship is to get past others and ourselves and to keep God at the center and to remember who we rightly are. And that is weak individuals incapable of bringing ourselves to salvation apart from the substantive grace of God. And what happens when when that becomes the mindset of the church? What happens when no longer are people first and primary? Some will argue, well, the church is going to die if we don't make a big deal about people. If we don't make the church service about the congregation, then nobody will stick around. That's not true. Because when we push to the side 
both other people and ourselves, and we rightly see who we are in our wickedness and depravity, and we begin to worship in spirit and in truth the one true living God, verse 10 declares the outcome of that kind of gathering. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. The kind of worship that is not man-centered, but is God-centered, full of work, applying our mind, realizing the Word must be at the center, is the kind of work and the kind of worship that has eternal implications. Why is it that we demand in Protestant churches that encyclicals from the Vatican are not what we preach on Sunday morning? Because all of those encyclicals will one day come to nothing. They are the wickedness that will come to ruin. You know, one of the interesting parts of pastoral ministry that I would have never thought, I think, the first year, is that inevitably, everybody wants you to make pronouncements about particular, if it's a political issue or whatever, the maybe trite theological tertiary issue. They, They want you to get embroiled in all of those controversies and to just... Just tell everybody what to believe. And you know, here's the reality. That is not my job. My job is not to constantly kind of have a, a press release from the stage where I just tell you, thus saith Jay. Who cares? I mean, if that's what you want out of your pastor, I really would encourage you to live on verses 3 and 4. One day this dude's going to die. But the Word of God will accomplish everything that God intends to do through it. So you know what the best thing we can do for this church? Not only this church, you know what the best thing we could do for San Angelo? And maybe not even San Angelo, but all of Texas. And not only the wonderful, majestic, great state of Texas in all of its glory and splendor, but the entire nation, and then from there the entire world, is to proclaim the goodness of God in accordance with His Word. And you know what's going to happen the moment that you say that's what we're going to be about? Somebody's going to say, oh, but that's a lot of work. I'm going to have to think. I don't know that I really want to do that. The only right answer to that kind of hard attitude is then, friend, lovingly, you don't want to worship. And we have nothing for you. Friends, if we are going to be worshipers of the triune God, we must not come in here and trivially come to to consume something that Jay has cooked up. We must come with a longing in our heart to look through whatever it is that I or Brian or others may do and to hear from the living God. One of the things that... I haven't even shared this with Sarah, and I'll I'll, I'll just conclude with this, that, that... that I thought last night as I was watching Handel's Messiah. And if you've never heard it, this probably is not going to make a lot of sense. So, for what it's worth. But as I sat and I I listened to all of this 250,000 notes that are played in Handel's Messiah. That's a lot. And uh, Handel wrote those notes, those 250,000 notes in 24 days. I can't get most of our kids to clean their room in that amount of time. And, and as I was sitting and listening, and again, the entire, there is a theological trajectory to that work. Um, 
and you get the reality of the weight of sin and the darkness of the world. I mean, could you imagine an entire concert in our day where the entire meaning of the first four or five songs is to declare the darkness of the depravity of the wretched human heart? But that's what happens. And as I'm sitting there and I'm just thinking and contemplating the wonderment of the reality of what Handel has done in his composition, then the, the thought struck me, no, you have to look beyond just the fact that, I mean, from the 16th century to today, this song has been playing ever since. I mean, we're talking 500 years 400 years that this song has in perpetuity been playing somewhere around the world. And that's amazing. But you know what? Handel is a little blip on the radar compared to the reality that God has written this grand redemptive narrative and it is coming to pass all throughout human history. And if we want to see our generation wake up to the glory of God, you know what we've got to stop doing? We've got to stop talking about Foolish politics and peripheral theological arguments that really don't bring the church together. And, and, and all of the little petty things that are the you and us. And we've got to put God back at the center and desire not merely to kind of have a church where we come and, bravo, Jay. Not that you would ever do that anyway. But to really long to hear what is the meaning under all of these words? I think I've shared this with you before, but one of the greatest analogies, I think, in all of church history is when Luther talks about the Word of God being like a tree, and he just wants to spend his life shaking every leaf on the tree, knowing what every word means. And if you were to ask me, that is the definition of true worship. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence tonight acknowledging that as the hymn states far too often, we have made worship to be all about ourselves. But it's really all about you. And so I pray, Father, in this place and in our generation, come what may, that we would stand on the substantive doctrines of your word and that we would come under the authority of Your Word, and that we would seek to be rebuked by Your Word, and to think through Your Word, and to challenge one another with Your Word, that we might be thoroughly washed by Your Word. And all of that, not so that we are just erudite in our thinking and intellectual geniuses, but that we might worship in spirit and in truth. That we might be those people who are blessed because our hope is in the God of Jacob. Christ's name. Amen.